On this episode of the London Life Scene, we talk with Dr. Robert Kolb about Luther's view of reality. So we cover topics like just let's hold up, give me a brief bio of who Martin Luther is. Tell me about his overarching theme and view of reality. What are the big ideas? What is his concept of conscience and how is it developed differently than others? What is the role of God's law? What is the historical context that's going on for while Luther's thinking compared to others like Thomistic, uh, Roman Catholic thinkers, or, or nominalists like William of Ockham, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And we want to walk this fine line between we want to uh, be serious about our thinking, encourage knowledge, encourage to think deeply about topics, but also to do it with certain virtues in mind. So we've tried to endeavor to create an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Sort of a posture of just humility and and kindness, uh, where we are interested in what others have to say, even if they're different from us. So we're always trying to do that. And today, I'm really excited to reintroduce you all to Dr. Robert Kolb. We're going to talk about uh, one of his new books that he's been working on, on Luther's view of reality. So he sent me over some initial draft chapters, and I am super excited to talk with him about this because this, it was really interesting and fun. I mean, I, I find Martin Luther just a fascinating figure to begin with. So to think about what all he's thinking about with reality, I think is just super fun. So I think you guys are really going to like this. So before we start, uh, Dr. Cole, maybe give me a little bit of background of what, where you've been and what you're doing now um, as far as... I guess, academic sort of work um, and, and maybe your writing and why it is that you decided you wanted to write a book on this topic. Thank you, uh, Brandon and Jordan. I'm really excited to be with you again. Uh, I um, I grew up in, in the Lutheran Church. Uh, uh, I may have mentioned last time one of my aunts and uncles had a big picture of Luther on the wall, and I knew at three or four years old, he must be somebody important. Um, and, and so I've been, been um, in conversation with him, you might say, uh, for a good long time now. I'm retired from Concordia Seminary. Uh, I uh, still teach. I am actually teaching four courses this semester. That's absolutely mad. I can't recommend it for anyone. Uh, but it's delightful. I have uh, seven Southeast Asian students uh, online and uh, two two groups at Concordia and another group on online for another institution. So, so uh, I just enjoy teaching uh, because I learn so much from my students. Uh, when I came to the seminary, uh, we had a grant if we would help post-Soviet churches. And so uh, I spent uh, about 13 years before I retired uh, officially, traveling three months a year for the seminary, largely in post-Soviet um, Europe, uh, but then I expanded my beat to India a number of times, to Japan and to Taiwan. Um, and, and it's been so good to get a non-North American view of what this wonderful fellowship of the Christian church is across the globe. 
Well, Dr. Kolb, maybe we can, uh, before we get into the meat of the book, um, just take a few minutes, if you don't mind, and start with a brief bio of Luther. I think, obviously, most of the listeners are going to be familiar with with who Luther is, but we never know who's listening. So for that one person who might be listening who doesn't know who Martin Luther is, give us a little bit of a background on him. Okay. Um, he was born in 1483. That means he wasn't quite 10 years old when uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So that that kind of puts him in a historical perspective for us. Uh, he's he's really at a bridge between the uh, medieval age and the early modern age in European history, and I think that's important. Uh, he is a kind of key figure, but he's one of those key figures that we still remember. We remember Machiavelli. They were roughly uh, contemporaries. We, we remember Erasmus. They were contemporaries. Um, but Luther has perhaps made a larger impact outside the European North American culture. And he is an interesting figure. He uh, was the grandson of agricultural peasants, and we think, oh, poor family. No, his his uh, paternal grandparents were pretty well off, and his uh, mother came from a merchant family that had already sent some children to the university. Uh, and his father then moved from, from being a, um, another farmer to uh, being an entrepreneur, finally ending up in copper smelting. Uh, so he he came from somewhat modest circumstances, but pretty good circumstances. And his parents wanted him to become a lawyer. Uh, and in the middle of that, he had a, a what we would call, I think, a spiritual crisis. Uh, went into a cloister. I, ha- I had a friend who insisted we not call him a monk. Uh, very important, not well-known biographical detail. Uh, he went into an Augustinian cloister, uh, perhaps because it was the closest to his dormitory in the university town of Erfurt, where he, where he was studying. And the difference between a, an Augustinian brother and a monk in a monastery is that the monks in the monastery were supposed to stay in the monastery. And the Augustinians, as like the Dominicans and the Franciscans, were supposed to get out and about and help parish priests in their areas. And so Luther had this background in pastoral care, in preaching and hearing confession and absolution that I think profoundly uh, influenced the way he did theology. Against his wishes, he was forced to become a doctor of theology. A doctor in Bible was actually the, uh, the title because the height of the curriculum was theoretically at least uh, teaching Bible. And Luther actually did it. Many of those who got the degree then went back to Peter Lombard, the systematic theologian of his uh, time. But Luther then only lectured on, on biblical books for the rest of his life. The, the most familiar details, I suppose, of his life are that um, he got into big trouble when he, out of his pastoral care, uh, pastoral concern and pastoral care experience, he challenged the practice of indulgences and implied in his 95 Theses of 1517, implied that um, the Pope wasn't as authoritative as the Church had had thought he was. And so uh, he was excommunicated, he was summoned before the Emperor of the German nation, and and then made an outlaw. But his his own ruler in, in the territory of Saxony protected him, and so he spent the rest of his life preaching and, and 
lecturing to university students, preparing them for ministry, uh, and uh, got involved in all kinds of disputes over what the faith really is all about. Um, in a sense, what reality is, how we think about reality, uh, that's my current take on it, at least, as, as Jordan was explaining. And uh, and uh, so he died in 1546 uh, at the, an age that was typical uh, for people who survived childhood in his day. So when we're thinking about Luther's, I guess, view of reality, maybe we start with, I mean, some of the broad themes, the big ideas that are there. I mean, it's interesting to me, you, you, I think you put in here at, at one point, you say, it's true as sometimes said that Luther had no ontology, only if the analysis of what human beings can identify as real is limited to the way that, say, Aristotle found access to, to reality limited. I mean, so what is Luther's take on just ontology, reality, big ideas before we can drill down into some of the more yeah. specifics? Um. I think the, the story of Luther's own spiritual journey begins in a world that had been influenced by the traditional religions. Uh, Christianity taught them new names, but the uh, saints replaced many of the pagan gods in the Germanic uh, traditional religions. And, um, and so uh, Luther grew up with... Christian Bible knowledge, but he, but with the structures, some of the structures at least of the traditional religions. Above all, that to talk Christian salvation comes from um, approaching God, and uh, in some way or other, using His grace or being given His grace, uh, but in in some way or other, convincing Him that uh, our works are good enough to, uh, to merit his grace and his, his, um, his heavenly reward. So that um, the, Luther's ancestors a thousand years earlier had, had known that sacrifice was important to uh, reach the gods. So the sacrifice of the mass, as it was explained in, in theology then, uh, became really the center of his his spiritual life, and when that didn't work, he went into the to the cloister uh, because that was the shortest, steepest, but shortest road to heaven, and he still knew that he wasn't doing as as the theology of the day demanded his best, so that he got on good on God's good side, but then he he was forced uh, by his superiors to lecture on the Bible, started with the Psalms got into Romans and then Galatians and then Hebrews. And as we know, that's, uh, that's just opening up a whole new, whole new world. It does for us today, too. And so he decided that it wasn't from us to God that's most important in our relationship with God, but from God to us. And it's not our performance of especially sacred uh, or religious acts, but it's, it's God coming to us with his word. And so that that changed the way you worshipped, that changed the way you thought about everything, including yourself, and certainly about God. And so uh, the, the, the really big framework for Luther's ideas, I think, is this shift from a, a ritual, hierarchical way of thinking about religion to a, a, um, 
God to us based uh, religion, and it, it and this God that he discovered in Scripture talks with us. He he just loves to chat. Uh, when Adam and Eve weren't there to chat anymore, he said, "Where are you? I gotta have my evening conversation." And so, uh, so it's with that kind of lively and very personal understanding of God that Luther uh, comes out of Scripture and goes back into Scripture. Maybe we can transition now to the role of conscience in Luther's thinking. Um, so help us understand well, what that role is in his thinking, and then maybe situate that against um, some other figures and their thinking on the role of conscience in the Christian life. Yeah, I'm not sure how people today really think of conscience, but it's sort of a little voice uh, that I probably shouldn't ignore, uh, but it gets pretty faint sometimes, and I can buy it off and uh, for Luther, the way, and this was a medieval usage of, of the term, um, it, it's more the uh, idea that, that you look around you and you see the order of the world. That's sort of what our conscience does today. But, um, but for Luther, it was this, this whole understanding of what, what reality is, is because of the way that God structured it. Uh, so it, it's a more comprehensive uh, understanding of the word conscience than we have. And that's what he meant when he stood before the emperor in 1521 and said that scripture had shaped his conscience and he couldn't go against it. Um, but that view of reality is something that also changes. Uh, there was a, a German Dominican uh, theologian, um, Otto Hermann Pesch, died just a few years ago, who contrasted Luther's um, what he called existential. He said it's not existential in the way that the 20th century people think about existential, but it really is concerned about how we exist as human beings. Um, and, and Thomas Aquinas, for instance, as a representative of the Middle Ages, how he thought about reality uh, in, in a way that sought wisdom that was um, not necessarily uh, anchored in history that's not quite true because Thomas believed Jesus Christ came as God in, in human flesh and all. Um, but uh, Thomas was looking for the broad principles. He was dependent on Aristotle. Aristotle didn't have a creator God, so he had to depend on the, on the structures of the law. And Luther saw that rather than the, the substance and accident uh, in the physics of Aristotle uh, that made up reality, uh, and the structure that the law gave to reality, it was fundamentally relational. It was fundamentally personal. God was relating to every one of his creatures through his word. Uh, he, calls, um, he calls rocks and, and, and tree leaves and, and us uh, all nouns, or uh, at least words in God's language. Uh, and so it's this, this relational view of reality uh, then that that um, brings Luther uh, into every kind of contact with the world, and that relationship is is comprehended in the word conscience to a certain extent. So you mentioned there, I guess, the role of God's law, at least in Thomas's thought, and then in, in how Luther's thinking about it. How does Luther think about God's law? Where does that come in? Does that still have an enduring significance for the believer? Yes. I mean, he thought that that um, 
the most important thing about me is uh, my relationship with God, the personal relationship. But I'm the human creature that God made, and, and God had a design for human creatures. And when we, um, when, we, when we don't live according to his design, the law reminds us, it slaps us back into uh, shape sooner or later, sometimes uh, tragically too late. Um, but the, the, um, the, the, there were two schools in, in medieval theology, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas would represent the one that was perhaps a little bit more influenced by Aristotle than the other school that followed a, a, a 14th century philosopher and theologian named William of Ockham. Uh, where and that's that's where Luther got his education in the Occamist uh, line of thought. So uh, Thomas, and I'm I'm simplifying and therefore not really representing him, but the the, the that school uh, thought that the eternal law is simply there and and uh, God operates obviously uh, in coordination with it. They, they don't. There's not any difference. In, in opinion between the law, the impersonal law, and the personal God. Whereas Occam said that the ultimate thing about God is that he's almighty. And so he created the law. Now, Occam's all, often accused of being uh, arbitrary, that, uh, well, if God could do anything he wants, he may do something different tomorrow. Um, i got to check the western horizon in the morning to see if the sun might just come up on that side. That's not Occam at all, because Occam said in his almighty power, God could and could have done anything. But in his ordinate or ordained power, potentia ordinata in Latin, in that, in that ordered power, he's made covenants with, with uh, humankind, with the earth. And so, God is reliable above all else except his power, uh, but they go together. Uh, and so um, you can trust that God's, um, God's covenants are going to stand fast. The problem that Luther had with his own Occamus training was that Occam said the covenant with the human being says that if you do what is in you, if you do your best by your purely natural powers, you'll get grace. And with that grace, then you can do truly God-pleasing works, and that'll get you into heaven. Luther knew that he never did his best, and so he was always in despair. And uh, and so the, the, the law is then something that God created, and it's a good thing. It's a good gift of God. Uh, the problem is that it's out to kill sinners. Uh, the wages of sin is death. So and the the law is what determines that we sin, and so we encounter the law. Luther encountered the law as something that was oppressive, um, but but in general, when he when he talked about the law simply as the law of God, it, it was a great gift of God because it brings a peace and order to our lives. Um, it's just that as sinners, we experience the opposite from it. Um, and so that that really uh, helps shape, it's shaped by Luther's experience and it shapes Luther's further experience because he came out of this school um, of William of Ockham.
I was going to ask you next about his understanding of humanity, but just something just popped into my head. Um, so when when I think about Luther, and I I've not done a lot of reading in Lutheran theology, so let me just say that up front. But um, when I think when I hear Lutherans on podcasts or the the bit that I have read, it seems like they're much more comfortable with mystery than say the Reformed tradition. Um, and so you mentioned in the introduction of of your book manuscript that he doesn't use the word uh, mysterium that often in his writing, but it is a concept that's there for him. Can you un- unpack that for us and help us understand what he means by mystery and what role that plays? Yeah, um, he saw that that God was as creator so much bigger than creatures that even before we sinned, we couldn't really comprehend God totally with our minds. Adam and Eve obviously did a better job than than we do because our minds have been um, corrupted by sin. But um, as creator, he had this this very warm feeling of personal relationship with the creator, but he also uh, saw that the creator was a whole lot bigger than he was. He um, he once commented that his, his little son, Hans, uh, looked up at him and knew that his father loved him but he also knew his father could whack him across the room. He didn't say it exactly that way, but that was the sense of it. Um, so he he had both something that I think we lack in North America, this sense of profound awe and wonder uh, before God, as well as this feeling that Jesus Christ had opened up the doors and we could go to our Heavenly Father and just sit on his lap and and, and be cuddled by him. So Luther then looks at life's experience, and he sees, first of all, uh, Christ has come to redeem us, but I'm still suffering sin and evil in my life. I'm still struggling with Satan. I, I'm still in this in this battle. And uh, he, he read Romans 7, uh, Paul's struggle between the law of sin and the law of, of uh, God within him. As, as really autobiographical of Paul as he was writing to the Romans, the pious Paul was still having this struggle with sin. And that's what he experienced, too. That was a great comfort to him to know that Paul had gone through what, what he was going through. And so he, he has this concept of the mystery of, of the continuation of sin and evil in, in the lives of the faithful. Uh, he, of course, had a, a sense of mystery when he looked at the Trinity, God's just bigger than uh, we are. Uh, he had a sense of mystery when he looked at the incarnation. How could, could God become this Jesus of Nazareth guy? Uh, and so, uh, and I, he never says this, but I think he sees humanity as a mystery too. We are called uh, to be uh, responsible for our actions. That's what his law tells us about. Luther understood law in a kind of narrower sense, saw that there were more biblical uses, but he had a narrower sense of uh, God's structure for our lives. What what we're to do is what the law talks about, and the gospel talks about what God does for us. And, and so he, he saw uh, that we were, um, we were in this structure, totally responsible, but at the same time, he saw that God, as Almighty, is totally responsible. And we're created in his image, so we have all 
all sorts of characteristics uh, that God has, um, but somehow he's 100% responsible for everything that happens in the world, and he holds us 100% responsible for what we're doing. That's that's the mystery of our humanity. So he was willing to uh, to sort of lean on the biblical texts, address the pastoral problems that he encountered um, when he was dealing with real people, and say, uh, we just place the rest in God's hands. So I'm a little curious. I want to go back a little bit to, you were talking about Occam versus sort of Thomistic conceptions. Is the the main difference for him where he follows Occam primarily in that view of the law, or are there other aspects of reality on ontology that he would be more consistent with Occam or more consistent potentially with the Thomistic understanding? Yeah, I think uh, he certainly uh, has that sense of God's almightiness. And um, the, the, the omnipotence of God plays into his conception of uh, God's grace. That God is, his righteousness is, uh, first of all, his uh steadfast loving kindness and his his mercy toward his human creatures his love for his human creatures and so um i think that plays in then with this concept that god is almighty and that's why uh in defiance of this mystery of sin he can come in human flesh die rise to restore our righteousness so that's certainly a one aspect. There's another aspect, too, I think, that's not precisely related to these. Occam said that reality... Uh, no, that not reality. Occam said that um, our words are based not on some inborn divine idea. He didn't deny that there were divine plans and, and designs for everything in the world. Um, but but our language is based on experiencing 17 things that look alike and serve the same purpose and say, that must be a desk. Uh, and uh, 17 different um, four-legged beasts that had the same mane and so forth, that must be a horse. Uh, it's not that we are sort of born with this idea of desk or horse in us already. Uh, and so that made Luther have a stronger doctrine of creation. And he's, he's, God gets down and dirty, he thinks. And so, uh, so he believes that God can use what I call selected elements of the created order, uh, human language, uh, the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as, as water and bread and wine to actually deliver the goods to, to convey his grace. And it's, and, Luther took up the question that was posed to him uh, by some of his Protestant opponents. Well, how can water do such great things? How can bodily eating and drinking do such things? In his small catechism, he says, hey, it's not the the water that does it. It's not that bodily eating and drinking that, that does it. It's the promise that they help communicate. Uh, so that's that's his concept of sign, that it's an effective sign that actually does stuff. Uh, and so uh, in his moments of despair, he looked to the cross, he looked to the promise, uh, he listened to his preacher, Johannes Bugenhagen and the like. Um, 
So I think those are all areas where Occam probably did influence his whole understanding of reality. Very cool. Uh, another area that I, I'd be interested in you unpacking a little bit is you, you talk in your book a little bit about his understanding of humanity. And three of the terms that came up uh, in, in that chapter were he's thinking about humanity in terms of fear, love, and trust. And I thought that was really interesting. So could you just unpack what Luther meant by those terms and what sort of role they played? Yeah. Uh, that's actually the the three are paired in his um, explanation to the first commandment. What does it mean to have no other gods? It means you fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And uh, that those three words are are among the words that modern psychologists too say are the just the basic fundamental human emotions. The uh, psychologist Eric Erickson. Uh, made trust sort of fundamental to human personhood and personality. Uh, he, Erickson said, we we learn uh, to trust or to mistrust in the first two years of our life. And uh, so a trust defines how we interact with the world and how we view ourselves and everything. And that, that corresponds to Luther's emphasis on faith or trust. Uh, so the, the the fear Luther scholars debate of whether Luther meant being scared of God uh, as a sinner or whether he meant uh, uh, this feeling of awe and wonder in, in the face of an almighty God. And uh, I think the answer is yes. Um, again, it's like, like with little Hans. Uh, I'm not really scared of him, but yeah, I am because I know I did something wrong. And and so uh, so he he's taking seriously that we have real fears and 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 have these attacks of doubt and and um, so forth even as Christians, uh, but then the love and the trust uh, become very important to him. Uh, he's he's known for his battle with Erasmus about the freedom of the will, but Erasmus and he traded notes. I didn't realize it for a long time, but Erasmus actually did borrow some insights from Luther. But Luther, in his his development of his theology, uh, as he was reading Romans, uh, he he not only uh, scooped up a copy of the first Greek published published edition of the Greek New Testament that Erasmus had edited, but he also used um, the the biblical comment of Erasmus, and there he discovered, among other things. Uh, that the word pistis in Greek, the word that we translate faith, uh, was not the equivalent of kind of the devil's believe and tremble uh, faith. Uh, sometimes it's called historic faith, just knowing the facts. Uh, but this this was better translated with the Latin word fiducia. Um, we get all sorts of words from fiducia, but it basically means trust. And that it's this trust that's the heart of our relationship with God. Uh, we just can put our whole lives in his hands. And so uh, so those three words kind of capture what Luther thinks are the, I suppose, the motivating forces in our lives. And and so when he, when he explains the other commandments, what does it mean when God says you are not to kill? It means, first of all, that we should fear and love God, that we may not hurt nor harm our neighbor in his body, 
but help and befriend him in every bodily need. But each of the commandments explanation then begins with this, we should fear and love God because uh, this isn't Luther's language, this is mine, out of our trust in some ultimate and absolute really comes our character. And our character shapes our disposition toward life. And out of the disposition comes specific attitudes toward different aspects of life. And out of our attitudes come actions. And so that, that fundamental trust determines the whole thrust of our daily life. We started with um, a biographical sketch of Luther, and then we moved into his ideas. Maybe now, um, this next question I have, we can kind of put those two things together. So um, over the years, as as Luther uh, matured as a theologian, um, how did his ideas change from, from when he first started? And then maybe part two to that question, did he have any relationships that you think were particularly um, influential in, in any ideas that, that might have changed, whether that be Melanchthon or anyone else? There was a grand debate that consumed altogether too many trees in the 20th century. Um, scholars made their mark in Luther studies by by identifying the point at which he became a Lutheran uh, or a Protestant. Um, I think probably the majority of, of people who study Luther today would say uh, he was like most of us. He didn't have a conversion experience with one just lightning bolt. He had a, a development. And he's got a couple of different versions of where there was a particularly important experience. But uh, it's suggested by some that uh, he began to see the importance of the relational fairly early on, uh, even before he became actually a lecturer on the Bible. And then in the 15-teens, he, he develops uh, under the influence, particularly of these people that are called by uh, scholars today, biblical humanists like Erasmus, who got him back into the Hebrew and the Greek and into the text and and emphasize the importance of getting this across to the people so they understand it. It does. It's got to be logical too. But the the emphasis on logic in the Middle Ages gives way to rhetoric with these biblical humanists. So, so uh, there are a number of scholars that would have influenced him in that way. But I think it's it's really important to see that while Luther was the captain of the team, the Reformation that came out of of the, the University of Wittenberg, was really a team effort. And the the most important uh, person on, on his team was Philip Melanchthon, who understood Greek a whole lot better than he did. Luther and Melanchthon probably understood Hebrew at about the same level, and, and Luther's Hebrew was better than his Greek. Uh, but uh, those two must have sat around and and argued and and looked at the text and went back and forth. And uh, they had a, a close relationship and one that bore a lot of fruit. Melanchthon um, also did biblical commentaries, uh, but he also pioneered in some new developments in rhetorical theory and communications theory. Uh, and then um, uh, Johannes Bugenhagen was the pastor of the local church and a professor at the university. And they uh, sent him out of town uh, sometimes to uh, help uh, towns and uh, principalities that wanted to organize their um, their churches along reformed lines. And and then there was Justus Jonas, who, who was a 
translator, translated both German into Latin and Latin into German. So there was a core there in Wittenberg that that really uh, led the parade. But there were there were preachers and and uh, city council members and all sorts of influential people, princes, across uh, not only the German speaking lands but into the Nordic countries and and in some places in the east. Uh, that really contributed not only by spreading Luther's ideas, but by, by helping him think through things. So I think there is a development. My own interpretation of Luther's so-called evangelical breakthrough is that it didn't happen. Uh, it was a, an evangelical maturation, uh, and that it was more or less completed by about 1521-22. Um, the core of his theology, I don't think, changes much after that. But he regarded his his lecture um, hall and his um, his pulpit in the town church as as laboratories. And he was he was always experimenting with how to say this more clearly, how to address new situations. So there are there are certain changes in emphasis and whatnot, but the 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 central line. Uh, really, I think, uh, comes um, clear by, by 1521 or 22. So one thing I'd love for you to tease out a little bit is Luther's sort of theology of the cross versus theology of glory and how that sort of shapes his understanding of the world. Because I think, I mean, of the things that I know about Luther, the theology of, his theology of the cross versus theology of glory is one of those big ideas that I hear people latch yes. on to quite often. And I've heard from some Lutherans that the way it gets perceived is sometimes a little bit off of what Luther would actually have thought about it. Yeah, there, there's a, some debate over exactly what it means. Uh it, it's always associated with theses he wrote to explain why he'd, he'd written the 95 theses on indulgences. And his so-called Heidelberg theses of 1518 don't talk about indulgences at all. Um, that wasn't what was really concerning him. Uh, he had started already to say, we've got to, uh, we've got to change the content of this theology that's shaped more by Aristotle and scripture is the way he would have said it, I suppose. And we've, so we've got to change both the content with its emphasis on the freedom of the will, and we've got to change its, its emphasis on using Aristotle's method as sort of governing the way we read scripture. He had, had floated those ideas in these uh, university disputations uh, with two students. That was the way they passed their exams. They showed that they could hold their own in debate with the professors and other students. Uh, and then came the 95 Theses. And so the Heidelberg Theses, I think, pick up on that and say, um, not going to talk about indulgences, not even going to talk about the power of the papacy. I want to talk about um, the core of theology. And it's that God reveals himself uh, not as a, a smash em dead, uh, conquer the world kind of savior, but as a savior who goes to the cross. And 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 really influenced uh, his theology of the cross, uh, what appears to be foolish and impotent to the world, Paul says, is um, the wisdom and power of God. And, and so that's the heart of what he's doing. And so he, he makes, I think there are 
as as the theology of the cross then continues to develop, it wasn't perfect in Heidelberg in 1518, but the seeds are there for, I think, everything that grows out of it. Uh, he says there's the hidden God and the revealed God. The hidden God is just this God that is a whole lot bigger than we can imagine. And he does some strange things. We're on his side, and he allows us to be tempted. He uh, he gives us these trials. He says he's building our faith, but hey, God, couldn't you do it some other way? Um, and, and so the hidden God is a God that's off limits to us. He doesn't stand in awe of somebody he can't see. He stands in awe before the cross. And so the revealed God is the God who comes to us in Scripture uh, through the prophets and the apostles um, and evangelists. Uh, and he's a God who, above all, revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that we have to nail our reason to the cross, and we have to rely on trust, that the, the faith that God is, is telling us the truth, the faith that God is reliable, the faith that Jesus Christ actually died for my sins and and rose to restore my righteousness, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, uh, that's, that's sort of the anthropological side, what it means to be human in Heidelberg. But then I think we ought to also say that the theology of the cross embraces the atonement. Somebody's got to die for sin. Sinners have to die for sin. Romans 6.23 is pretty clear. The wages of sin is death, and, and sin's an absolutely fair paymaster. And, um, and Christ took our place. Uh, and then, as, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, he rose for our justification. He rose to restore our righteousness. And so, uh, in, in, in God revealing himself in death and resurrection— uh, even though it looks like a dumb way to do things and a, and a powerless way to do things, it's the way God succeeds. So that's the atonement side of it. Then, then Luther uses that, and this isn't as clear in, in 1518, I think, as it becomes later. Uh, this is the way that God operates in the world. And so we uh, who are, are his children can, can understand why we suffer. Because he he suffered and and defeated evil, and we're defeating evil too, precisely in our suffering. And uh, and then a Swedish scholar Gustav Wingard talks about a kind of aspect of the theology of the cross and the fact that we bear the crosses of our neighbors in our callings. Um, we're called to be parents, and that means getting up in the middle of the night for the child when we don't want to get up in the middle of the night. Um, we are called to be uh, workers in the factory, and that means uh, covering for a co-worker when he or she uh, is sick or whatever, and so on and so forth. Uh, so uh, the, the theologian of, of glory wants to use reason and wants to explain everything uh, about God there is. Uh, I don't think we necessarily need to say that uh, the theology of glory automatically excludes grace. I, I, I think the, the tricky thing that Luther saw is that, that you and I are always being tempted uh, to uh, be theologians of glory. Uh, whether we're, we're uh, clergy or lay, 
a neighbor comes and says, how could God do this to me? And we immediately want to defend God and, and provide a good explanation. Uh, and sometimes all we can do is, is weep in the face of evil. And, and so that, that whole aspect of the Christian life becomes more important later for Luther. And, um, and Melanchthon picks that up then too. Uh, his, his only real treatment of the theology of the cross is about the cross in the Christian life. And is the church persecuted? Well, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, that's uh, the devil f sees us as a big threat, and he, he's right. We are. So one last thing I, I want to know is when I think of Luther, one of the famous stories that I know and I hear is when he's in the. T I don't remember where he's at. He's in a tower. And he's got this this great epic fight with the devil, and he throws what is his his ink pen or something against the wall. Yeah. Ink pot. So ink pot. So everybody, I think, knows Luther has. I mean, it's almost like it's a very medievalish worldview. Where I think in the Middle Ages, a lot of people there was much more cognizance of there's demons, there's angels. Like there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on. You come to the modern period, and everything has a reason for it that isn't spiritual. Does yeah. does Luther really think that say the devil is literally quite really almost all over the place where he's really influencing a lot of matters or, or is he more localized to certain areas and certain specific places? And maybe, you know, given the epic uh, importance of the Reformation, the devil really is there trying to tempt Luther. I mean, in my own theology, I don't know, but how prevalent is he in Luther's thought? Um, actually, Heiko Olbermann, who was uh, taught at Harvard and then at, at the University of Tübingen, then at Arizona, uh, said the devil looms much larger in Luther's thought than it did in the Middle Ages. And I thought that was an interesting observation because I always think, too, there are witches and demons and all sorts of things. But Satan as a real foe is, um, is not as formidable for most medieval theologians and even some devotional writers as, it was, as he was for Luther. I think it's no surprise that Luther had this very strong uh, image of Satan uh, because he has this very strong image of the personhood and personality of God. And so uh, what, what is real at, at that level takes, takes shape in, in persons. Um, I was just amazed. I worked on a commentary a few years ago uh, on on. Uh, Luther's on the freedom of a Christian from 1520. And there he talks about our liberation from sin, death, the wrath of God, the condemnation of the law. And I just was going along peacefully and thought, where's the devil? He wasn't there. So I looked in the whole treatise. He wasn't there. And uh, so I started looking in um, the American edition of Luther's works because they have nice indexes for the devil in the works before 1520. And the devil's occasionally mentioned. It's not that Luther didn't think there was a devil, but he's not very important. And so I looked at a work by a German theologian named Hans Martin Barth, uh, who wrote his dissertation on uh, Luther and the devil. And I was just amazed. Barth has practically no quotations 
from Luther that talk about the devil before 1521. And I thought, hmm. But in 1521, he was condemned by, to death by the Pope as a heretic and condemned to death by the emperor as, a, as an outlaw. And I thought, oh, uh, what was it uh, Samuel Johnson told about uh, somehow the, the threat of hanging puts an edge on your mind? I, I've forgotten exactly the quote. But all of a sudden he realized that what he was up against was more than just um, human powers. And so he picks up on the, on the early churches, devil, world, and flesh as our enemies, or devil, world, and our own desires. Uh, but one thing I think that separates him from some modern Christians, who almost give you the impression that we're not quite sure how the battle's going to come out, uh, he's got these wonderful sermons that he preached on, on how the poor devil just got slaughtered uh, on Good Friday already, and especially on Easter morning. And so he, he talks about the magnificent duel uh, in which Satan just gets gunned down by Jesus. And uh, so we, he's, he's got the comfort that the, the war has been won, but the, the battle is still going on, and it's, it can be a fierce battle. Uh, even though the outcome is assured. And so, yeah, um, uh, some would say uh, the devil's behind every rock and every tree. Um, it's worse than that. The devil's lurking in our own minds and hearts. And, um, and the devil, um, Jesus said, is by nature a liar and a murderer. And so we have to realize that he's, he's out to have us deceive ourselves uh, and, and to be deceived by him. And that's why the truth of the gospel is so important and why it's so important for Luther to be dwelling in the word and, and, um, and reading scripture and, and letting the sword of the spirit, the word of God, um, fight for us. Well, that is an awesome note to end on. So Dr. Kolb, I, I've loved this. Remind me, this book is there an estimated publication date of any sort? And who is the p publisher? I can't remember if that's decided. If it's not decided yet, you don't have to tell me. But if it is, you can yeah. tell me. No, it's it's not decided yet. I'm hoping to offer it to Lutheran Quarterly Books, actually. But um, the 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 expected date depends on the author. And, and sometimes he moves a little more slowly than uh, than he used to. Uh, so I'm hoping that I can wrap the manuscript up in uh, 2022. Uh, and if if somebody bites right away, then uh, 2023 might see it out. Um, but I've been really excited uh, by it because it picks up on what I think is, as you were saying at the beginning, uh, central themes in Luther's thought that then help you work through uh, all sorts of sub-themes. Yeah. That's great. Well, I really enjoyed uh, the the amount that I was able to read. I think it's fantastic. And I think I, I got to mention this because I just think it's hilarious. On your bio on Concordia, you've got it, it goes over quite a bit of what you've done. And then it on the section where it talks about the books you've written, it, it just says he's the author of several books and there's like 50 books there. Um, so <laughs> you are a prolific author. Uh, so if they all say the same thing, though, <laughs> if if people aren't aware 
uh, of all the work that you've done. You've got to go check out the resources that Dr. Kolb has made available for us. I mean, I think people can realize from just listening to you that you have a, a deep pastoral heart uh, matched with a great intellect and a way of explaining things. So commend all your resources. I haven't read them all, but I've got them on my list of things to read as I work through because I've really enjoyed getting to know you um, from our conversations that we've had. And there are some people you can just tell they have a really godly life and I, and I want to get to know them more and emulate what they do and how they, how they handle theology. So I think you're one of those people. So thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been a real delight. Um, and thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, no problem. Yes, so we, we encourage everybody to take a look at Dr. Cole's stuff. I think it's great. And for everybody who's been tuning in, as you know, this is the only analytic Bob Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.